We will be returning to Luke's gospel soon after Easter. But as I contemplated this season of the year, I wanted once again to turn our attention to Gethsemane. As recorded in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that our Savior came into this world, that He entered into Jerusalem, but that he entered so that he might die, shed his blood, redeem us, save us, and that he would rise on the third day. This is truth. This is historical reality. This is what he has done But may our minds and hearts' attention be focused upon this text, and we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. If a minister had the tongue of an angel, he could not say what needs to be said about this passage. But your Holy Spirit can open our hearts and apply it, and so we pray for that work. In the lives of your people and in the lives of lost ones who are here today, May there be permanent change. May there be regeneration. And may for your people, may there be true and genuine growth. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Standing together with your copy of God's word in your hand, Matthew 26, beginning with verse 36. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. 
See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, will you, for our soul's good, meditate with me on Jesus' agony in Gethsemane? Let us remember that Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man, the two natures united in one person. God assumed human nature. God became man. He had real human emotions, though without sin. He was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Never in the New Testament do we read that Jesus laughed. Undoubtedly, he did. He was fully human. But the New Testament would have us understand that he must be submerged under the floods of God's awesome wrath. The Savior came on a mission from the Father's throne to give his life as a ransom for many. But that mission was no cold, calculated, easily accomplished thing. The gospel writers tell us that as he moved toward Calvary, his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. So as we come to this text, we see first of all Jesus' agonizing prayer. Matthew tells us what happened. In the context of the plot to kill Jesus and having held the Passover with his disciples and having instituted the Lord's Supper and having foretold Peter's denial, Jesus goes with his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Of the disciples, he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, farther from the others, wanting them to watch with him as he enters into his sorrowful and terrible prayer. Jesus goes yet a little farther and prays to his father that the cup pass, should it be the Lord's will. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus went deeper into the woods and prayed again for the cup to pass, should it be the father's will. And again, he came and found his disciples sleeping. He left them and went away, praying the same words a third time. And then he came and found his disciples, just as Judas was leading the cohorts of soldiers sent to arrest him and bring him to the cross. This is the context of Jesus' agonizing prayer. Gethsemane, you probably know, means oil press. But in Gethsemane, Jesus himself is being put into the press of the wrath of God. Matthew might intend for us to see significance in the fact that Jesus prays in a garden before going to the cross. In the garden, Adam said, in essence, my will, not yours. Now Jesus, the last Adam, will say, your will, not mine. So he exhorts his disciples to pray, taking Peter, James, and John, and he begins his agonizing prayer. Is this not what we most see as we look at this text? The agony of Jesus' prayer, the emotional stress of the Lord is truly overwhelming as we read this passage. And notice how Jesus describes his sorrow in Matthew 26, 37. He began to be sorrowful and troubled, 
the first verb from lupeo that means pain or grief. The second verb is from admoneo that means great mental distress. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, we read that he was in agony. In Mark fourteen thirty-three, he was very distressed. Cranfield says in his work on Mark, being in the grip of a shuddering horror in the face of the dreadful prospect before him. The horror faced by the Savior was unbounded. Here we move into what the Greek church calls his unknown sufferings. Luke tells us that an angel was sent to strengthen him, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. And Calvin comments, such deadly sweat could only have flowed from a dire and unusual horror. His entire body shows the bottomless distress of his soul. Can you not see, as we turn to this passage, agonizing prayer, Jesus praying to his Father in sheer agony of soul. That leads us to the question, this is the second thing, why did our Savior agonize in prayer here in Gethsemane? Why? What was the reason? What was behind it? What was going on? Well, he had a real body and soul, a genuine human being he was, God and man, two natures perfectly united in one person. Did he agonize because of the physical sufferings that he would endure? We should never underemphasize, we should never minimize the physical sufferings of our Savior. William Temple said that Jesus' wounds are his credentials to the suffering race of human beings. Are you suffering? Does God seem distant from you? God's own son suffered, yet he would rise from the dead and believer, so shall you. But two reasons in addition to the physical suffering are more to the core of the issue as we think upon this prayer. Why did he agonize before his father? Well, first, Jesus knew his feelings of overwhelmingness would intensify on the cross. Now, in verses 39 and 42, he prays, my father. Now, that's significant. In drinking the cup for me, Jesus lost his sense of intimacy with his Father. He was forsaken that you who now believe in him would not be forsaken. And secondly, Jesus prayed this prayer because he is overwhelmed, and he is overwhelmed because he is altogether and completely sinless and holy. Now, because you and I are sinners, we can scarcely know what that means, Jesus' soul is filled with revulsion and horror as he ponders what it will mean to bear the sins of sinners. That is what the cross is all about, sin-bearing, in our place, bearing our sin, taking the wrath of God upon himself. Jesus is stepping into the vestibule of full exposure to the wrath of God. The sword of justice comes down upon the Son in our place. In verse 31 of this chapter, Jesus said to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
Now think on this quietly within your heart. When you look to God through faith in Christ, what do you find? You find a gracious God. You find a God whose heart goes out to you in complete grace and utter mercy. God the Son, as he bore God's wrath, saw no gracious God. No gracious Father smiling upon him. His death satisfies God's wrath toward us, but only because upon him the wrath of God was poured out in full as our substitute. Can you know God to be a gracious God? We are covered from wrath because for him there was no covering from wrath. He was abandoned that you might not be abandoned. He was cursed that you might know the blessing of justification. And that is what God thought of his son on the cross. He saw our sin. He saw his son as our sin bearer. He saw his son as sin itself. As he bore in his own body and soul our sins, he saw his son as the cursed one. That is what God thought of his son on the cross. And that is why in Gethsemane, our Lord was overwhelmed. Because on the cross, Christ is sin in the Father's eyes. He has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, says Paul the Apostle. So thirdly, what does the prayer for the cup to pass mean? The prayer for the cup to pass is found in verses 39, 42, and 44. And there have been many views on why he prays for the cup to pass. There are those who have said he's not praying for deliverance from the cross, but from the agony of Gethsemane and from the depression of Gethsemane. There are others who have said he's praying against premature death in Gethsemane. Yet others have said he's praying that his suffering will not be prolonged to eternity. But no, no, none of these will do. Uh, All of these are simply wrong. No, no. Jesus was praying in all of the agony of his true human soul about the cross. He is saying as a true human being, though sinless, The God-man, he is saying in prayer to his heavenly Father, Father, as I contemplate what I am about to do, bearing sin in my holy soul, bearing the mud showers of your wrath upon my body and soul, as I contemplate these things, I cannot help but shrink from them. If it be morally possible, consistent with your plan, let this cup pass. And do not misunderstand the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. It was all along a prayer of trust. But he faces, let us remember, he faces the cross and all that the cross means. And it is abhorrent to him that his holy body and soul would bear sin. And he feels the cost of the sacrifice, the cost of being the sinless substitute bearing the sins of sinners. The cup, what does Jesus mean by the cup? The cup is Old Testament language for the pouring out of God's wrath. 
The cup is the symbol of the wrath of Almighty God. Many Old Testament passages to which we could turn, but turn to one with me, if you will. The 75th Psalm. In Psalm 75, we read of God's just judgment upon sin and sinners. And in Psalm 75, 6 and 7, we are told, Psalm 75, 6, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And now verse 8, For in the hand of Jehovah, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Had we time, we would look at Isaiah 51 and again in Jeremiah 25. The passage in Jeremiah 25 is certainly fascinating. When Jeremiah passes the cup representatively to the nations that must drink down the wrath of God, and Jeremiah says, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And so the prophet Jeremiah representatively takes the cup of the wrath of God and he holds it to the representatives of the nations and he says to them, here, you drink it. Here, you drink it. Here, you drink it. Would you have taken the cup? Would you have drunk down to the dregs the cup that is held out by the prophet? Jesus took the cup. Not from the hand of Jeremiah the prophet, but from the hand of his holy heavenly father. Jonathan Edwards says, in Gethsemane, Jesus then had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. His terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. For what was the human nature of Christ to such a mighty wrath as this? It was in itself without the supports of God, but a feeble worm of dust. So Jesus prays in all of the fullness of his sinless but real humanity. And he is overwhelmed with the thought of the wrath of God and what it will mean for him to bear the wrath of God. So the cup is an awful image, wouldn't you agree? The cup is a terrible image. And what makes it so awful? What makes the image of the cup so awful is not only that it is the wrath of God in the cup that is to be poured out. What makes the image so awful in the context of Gethsemane is that Psalm 75 teaches that the wicked drink the cup. And Jesus is holy Sinless, undefiled, separate from sinners, yet he drinks the cup. No, he 
drinks my cup. No, he drinks your cup of wrath. Dutch theologian Klaus Schilder says one would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what it is is that is tearing Jesus apart in the garden. Schilder's a great theologian, but he misses it. No, you could be in hell for eternity and still not understand what is tearing his soul apart because only Jesus is the God-man. But he's right when he goes on to say, The awfulness of his situation is that God recedes from him. Any attempt to understand the meaning of Gethsemane is sacrilege and folly unless it discovers the explanation in Almighty God. Unless you begin with a high, lofty, biblical view of who God is, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, unless you begin with the Trinity... Unless you begin by understanding who Jesus is in relation to the Father and the eternal love that exists between the members of the Trinity, one God and three persons. Unless you begin to understand Gethsemane in light of the plan of redemption established in eternity past, that the Father who set his love upon you would send his Son to redeem you, the Son would willingly come, the Holy Spirit would open your heart to receive the good news of the cross of Jesus and the gospel of his resurrection. Unless you begin to see Gethsemane in the context of the character of God, the plan of redemption, you will never begin to understand its meaning. Well, what does it mean? How does it apply to us? Well, the fourth thing, what does the prayer mean for our redemption? And here I have more than I can say, and so I will be circumspect. This prayer, this prayer was a prayer of resignation. Not my will, but thine be done. His holy soul could not but shrink from the wrath of God, but his holy soul could not help but submit to the will of God. Conclusion? The cross was unavoidable if the Father was to be obeyed. The cross was unavoidable if God was to be glorified. And the cross was unavoidable if you and I are to be saved from our sins. How awful sin must be. How awful the wrath of God must be. The punishment must be commensurate with the gravity of sin. And that is why it requires the second person of the Trinity, God himself, assuming human nature, to pay the price of sin. Sinners in hell will experience the wrath of God differently than did Christ. He knew nothing of a gnawing of a guilty conscience. He felt no torment of inward lust or corruption. He never hated God's person. He did not suffer despair. He did not deserve it. Christ's sufferings were infinitely worthy, however, to pay the price for eternity. But he did not suffer for eternity. If you could but sense the danger you were in, who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you would fall in bloody sweat and cry out in amazement to contemplate the wrath of God that he bore in the place of sinners like us. 
How dreadful were Christ's sufferings. Not a martyr's death, but with full revulsion towards sin, yet he bore it. But think of this. How great is the love of Christ for sinners, that he would take down the wrath of God in gulps, bearing the fierceness of the wrath of God for the love that he had for you. In view of sin and its stark rebellion and even knowing his own disciples in gratitude, yet he loved and he went to the cross. That was the joy set before him, ultimately. Now, Christian, let me simply ask you, why don't you let the proof of God's love for you here in Gethsemane and on the cross set you on fire for service to Jesus? In view of what he has done for you, isn't living a selfish, petty sort of life an absolute waste? Hasn't he saved you, purchased you? Do you not belong to him? Hasn't he paid the wrath, the penalty for you? Doesn't this demand change in your heart, believer, who have been saved by his substitutionary work? And how willing Christ is to receive sinners. Here is the assurance that the Lord receives every sinner who comes to him by faith. Is that you? And think of this. The obedience that Christ offers in worship to his Father is a marvel to behold. Again, Jonathan Edwards He was the most wonderful instance of a submission to God's sovereignty that ever was. If God lays his hand upon us in some acute pain of body, how ready are we to be discontented and impatient when the innocent Son of God who deserved no suffering could quietly submit to sufferings inconceivably great and say it over and over, God's will be done. Believer, God will never, never, never pour out his condemnatory judicial wrath upon you because he has already poured it out on his own son, our last Adam, our great high priest in your place. The judicial wrath of God against believers is spent so that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But another thing to contemplate as we apply this truth of Gethsemane to our lives is simply this. Does not the suffering of the Son of God put our suffering in perspective? Sometimes I hear Christians, or I read it in biographies of great Christians, sometimes I hear Christians who've gone through the depth of trial and they will say, oh, that was my Gethsemane. And when I hear it, I cringe. When I read it, I cringe. Only one has gone through Gethsemane. I do not minimize your suffering, but I maximize his. His was a suffering that paid an infinite debt. You will never, never go through Gethsemane. 
Whatever you suffer, you will never suffer what the Holy Son of God suffered for you in your place. And yes, his sufferings are in a sense drawn in our Christian souls, but we will never bear the wrath of God. And this puts all of my suffering into glorious perspective. There's purpose for it. There's reason for it. But I will never bear the wrath of God. But fifthly and finally, will you please notice as we read this text, and if you read on in the gospel narratives leading to the cross, will you simply notice that what Jesus did for us, he did alone. His sufferings were real, unique, vicarious. Almost every time that we come to this season of the year, I think of an article that I read years ago. It was an interview with Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann, many of you know, liberal New Testament scholar from Germany whose influence on New Testament studies is still vast. And there was an article in Der Spiegel, and he was asked about the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection. Well, of course, he did not believe in a substitutionary atonement, and he did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And he answered a question with this answer. Bultmann said, if the Christ who died such a death was the preexistent Son of God, what would death mean for him? Obviously very little if he knew that he would rise in three days. And I'm astounded every time I think of Bultmann's answer. It is a total misapprehension of the issue. Here in Gethsemane, we see the holy soul of the Son of God knowing that he is about to bear our hell. The mystery of the sufferings of the Son, the depth and reality of substitution, knowledge of the resurrection does not mean that the Son's apprehension of the reality of wrath-bearing on the cross would be a walk in the park. How miserable is the unbelieving view of Christ. He will bear the wrath of God, the Son, our Savior, and no other. No one else could do this. No one else can be your Savior. No one else can be your Redeemer. Nothing upon which you might lean or trust. No idol of your heart can save you. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. So he says in verses 45, 46, sleep on. Or maybe sleep later, depending upon the translation. But the point is, it's too late to join me in prayer now. Perhaps he even at this moment sees the torches coming up from the Kidron Valley as the soldiers will take him to his mock trials and lead him to the cross. And what most impresses me is that none can do what only he can do. Soon he will be on the cross of shame, ransoming our souls from sin, He will be shrouded in complete, thick darkness. Jesus will go on, 
He will go on to the cross, and he will go on alone. 